We're just uh, two messages shy of finishing the book of 2 Timothy, which has been an incredible blessing to me in my life. Kind of feel like this book has been more pointed towards me more than anyone. So thankful for God's word. And this morning, uh, I want to share again in my continued series of reformers. There's a few left that I haven't mentioned. So this one, this man is regarded as arguably the most important and influential figure in Western civilization over the past 1,000 years. Any guesses? John Calvin. John Calvin towers above the landscape of church history as the greatest reformer of the 16th century. A man of immense abilities and prolific industry, this monumental pillar of Christian faith was many things. A world-class theologian, a revered exegete, a renowned teacher, a master commentator, a church statesman, and the most enormous leader of the Protestant movement. But first and foremost, John Calvin was a pastor, a faithful shepherd of two churches for almost 30 years, and amid his many pastoral duties, he was primarily a preacher of the word. For this authoritative reformer, biblical preaching was job number one. John Calvin was born over 500 years ago, July 10th, 1509, in France. His father sent him to school to be a priest when he was young, and he earned his Master's of Arts degree when he was 18 years old. His father would have him change, have a change of heart, and then would send John to law school to become a lawyer. However, after his father died, John returned on his own volition to Paris to study theology. Although John Calvin was raised a devout Catholic, during school he would attend meetings to discuss the Reformers, who were leaving the church, and most intriguingly, the one in this charge was Martin Luther, who was teaching that salvation was God's gift and could not be earned. John was interested, but cautious. Secretly, he and his friends would read the writings of Martin Luther, but it was dangerous because of Protestants and their persecution. He couldn't find any peace in absolutions or penances or intercessions of the church. And in 1533, when Calvin was 24 years old, God suddenly converted him through his own private study of the word. Calvin would write in his commentary of the Psalms, God subdued me and made me teachable. Like a flash of light, I realized in what an abyss of errors and what chaos I was. He would move frequently from place to place after his conversion, escaping death because of the Roman Catholic Church and their view of the Protestants. He would eventually land in the city of Geneva, Switzerland, and he would become a faithful preacher of the scriptures. It is written about Calvin that Calvin had no weapon but the Bible. From the very first, his emphasis had been on Bible teaching. Calvin preached from the Bible every day and under the power that a preaching the city began to be transformed. As the people of Geneva acquired knowledge of God's word and were changed by it, the city became known as John Knox called it later, a new Jerusalem from which the gospel spread to the rest of Europe, England, and the new world. If Calvin had been forced to relinquish all of his ministries except one, it would have been the pulpit. During the medieval centuries, the primacy of preaching had all but been lost. The pulpit was relegated to a much lower status with the mass and the ritualism assuming the most important place in the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformation would change that significantly. The Reformation was so pulpit-driven that it actually changed the architecture of churches. One writer says, the altars along of the centers of the Latin mass be removed from the churches and that a pulpit with a Bible on it be placed at the center of the building. This was not to be on one side of the room, but at the very center where every line of the architecture would carry the gaze of the worshiper to the book, which alone 
carries the way of salvation and outlines the principles upon which the church of the living God is to be governed. And more than mere preaching was regained, but expository preaching. Instead of long and fanciful stories about saints and martyrs, instead of passages from Aristotle and Seneca, the reformers would preach the Bible. The question was no longer what did the Pope say, but what did the Bible say? The preacher's one great task was to set forth the doctrinal and moral teachings of the Word of God above all else. The Bible, a long neglected book in the public gathering of the church, was suddenly restored to the Reformed pulpit, and no one preached the Bible more than John Calvin. As a naturally shy and introverted man, Calvin never sought the spotlight, much less controversy. Instead, he was a reclusive individual who preferred the quiet uh, time in his scholar study. But Calvin was providentially thrust into the pulpit in Geneva where he preached the full counsel of God's word. Calvin's pulpit electrified Geneva and sent shockwaves throughout Europe and Scotland and England. Calvin's teachings soon surged across the Atlantic to America with the arrival of the pilgrims. One author writes, Sunday after Sunday, day after day, Calvin climbed the steps into the pulpit. There he patiently led his congregation verse by verse through the book, book after book of the Bible. So committed was Calvin to consecutive exposition that when he returned to Geneva on September 13, 1541, after being banished for four years, he resumed his exposition at precisely the next verse. He picked up where he left off. Calvin would preach faithfully for many decades, facing many difficulties and strains. He would remain faithful to the end. His last sermon was preached on February 6, 1564, when violent coughing interrupted his message. He was forced to step down from the pulpit, and his congregation realized that he would never enter the pulpit again. The time at last had come for Calvin to lay down the invincible weapon of spiritual warfare, the preached word, and enter the presence of his glorious Lord. On May 27, 1564, Calvin died. According to his humble request, he was buried in an unmarked grave. My wife and I, and baby Charlotte at the time, traveled to Geneva, Switzerland from Sweden. Plane tickets were $14 a piece. And we visited Geneva. Visited the sites, visited the church where Calvin preached. A lot had changed in 450 years since Calvin's death. Calvin's death. The city was still gorgeous, but the churches were empty, unresponsive, museum-like. Preaching had long but evaporated from their midst. Instead, the churches sustained themselves by selling tours to people like me. What killed the churches there? What do you think it was? The word stopped being faithfully preached, and the churches died. The buildings are gorgeous, but they're empty. One of the most beautiful and important monuments of church history is the Reformation Wall, which sits opposite of the University of Geneva. We stood before the Reformation Wall, taking it all in, remembering all those who came before, who gave their life for the church and for the gospel. And while we stood there, a group of school students came by. They were on their lunch break, and they sat eating their lunch with their back to the wall. And I observed that not one ever turned around to even see where they were at. I wondered if they had forgotten the rich history of that beautiful city. Some didn't even seem to care less. 
Geneva is no longer the New Jerusalem sending the gospel to the nations. Instead, it seems they have no idea who God is and what the Bible says. And how much has changed in 400 years? If we relegate the preaching of God's word, God will be forgotten. Our church will be forgotten. We must be known as a Bible preaching church until Jesus brings us home. Our concern must not be for ourselves only. We cannot allow our generation to be the last of Edgewood Bible Church. What kind of church will we pass on to our children's children? That should consume our prayers. Are we too short-sighted? If the Lord tarries another 400 years, will Edgewood Bible Church still be a Bible church? The same concern for preaching in the church was at the heart of Paul as he writes this last letter from a cold prison in Rome. His main concern that the church not end with Paul. Timothy, his protege in ministry, needs to keep the faith, keep pressing on and on ministry and keep preaching. There will be difficulties and struggles in ministry. There will be those challenges that, that face Timothy, but he must, above all else, Preach the word. So what does preaching of the word have to do with the congregation? What does preaching have to do with you? Is preaching something that you need to be concerned with? This morning I want to look at just five verses and what preaching the word has to do with the pastor and the congregation. You should have received a bulletin and an outline when you came in this morning there is a reason why we write outlines and we share it with you. Those are mile markers along the way, okay? They're helpful to you. They're helpful to me. It gives you some insight in where we are, where we've been, and where we're going. And if you've ever driven on the road, we like mile markers, right? So that's what the outline is for. And so, unfortunately, I only have two for you this morning. And the first is longer than the second. So I don't know how much help that'll be. The two points this morning is the pastor and the word, or the preaching of the word, and the congregation, the preaching of the word. And I want to encourage you to take notes, even if it's just a few things that you jot down during the sermon, but it will serve you well to take note of what God is bringing to your attention during our time together. And so I'm going to read the passage, and then, and then I'm going to pray. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Father, we have spent this last week outside in the world hearing all sorts of information. Some of it is truth from your word, some of it's not. But now, God, we come to sit under the preaching of your word. God, I ask that you would speak to your people. Open our eyes, unplug our ears, keep us alert and focused on you this morning. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. First, the pastor and the word. Last week, we looked at the two verses from chapter three, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we considered why we should trust the word of, for all of life, because the Bible speaks to all of life and is profitable. Now, the Bible is sufficient for all of life. Now, Paul continues, and he charges Timothy here in chapter 1. He charges in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season, not of season. Repuve, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And these have to be the two most paramount verses for any man who is to be a pastor. We have a charge from God above. There is a king and there is a throne. Preachers are under the scrutiny of God first and foremost, the one who will judge the living and the dead. We, we, we preach under the watch of the omniscient, holy judge overall. No preacher in all of earth goes unnoticed because all preaching comes before God's throne. God hears all preaching. People may not notice the preacher. They may ignore him week after week, but God never ignores the preaching of the pastor. And this should give a pause to every preacher. We ultimately have an audience of one, and that one is King Jesus. He is the judge. It says in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, and he is coming back. And Paul reminds him of his appearing in his kingdom. His, his appearing is the verb form in the Greek, meaning to shine forth, to appear, to become visible. And he will say, uh, and, and Lord willing, we'll look at it next week, that all who have loved his appearing will receive a crown of righteousness. But there'll be some who will not love his appearing. They will dread it. That's why Timothy here must preach the word. And let's be honest this morning. Preaching is a strange thing to do. I don't know if you really, you could just pop into my life for just a few moments, okay? I, the looks that I get from people on a regular basis and the comments from those that are not necessarily in our church, my neighbors in particular, they find my job the strangest thing on the planet. I would spend so much of my weekly hours preparing to share a 45-minute talk. And in our age of pithy sound bites and immediate interaction, most of our communication is done by short editorials and short blog posts, even shorter Facebook and Twitter posts. Our attention spans are trained and molded by television shows that switch camera angles every seven to eight seconds. Do you know why? Because you would get bored if they waited any longer. And now I stand before you and I expect you to sit and listen to a preacher talk for 45 minutes. And you cannot comment or dialogue. Preaching is a strange thing in our day today. But this is a task for the pastor. And this is the pattern we see in scripture from Ezra to Peter. And the word preach was originally a political term, not a religious one. It referred to the function of a herald. If a king had a message to get out, he couldn't just call a press conference or a news media to publish it. 
He needed someone to herald it, to communicate the news. So to preach means to herald, to proclaim publicly, and pastors proclaim a message. And the importance of preaching rests in its content, not in its function. As Pastor H.B. Charles says, our preaching is not the reason the word works. The word is the reason our preaching works. We intend to be expository preaching also in this church. Expository preaching is simply this, okay? You might wanna jot down this simple definition. The main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. We intend to have expository preaching in this church behind this pulpit. Expository preaching is word-driven. This preaching exposes God's word to God's people. It opens it up for them and then it applies it to their hearts so that they may understand it and they would obey it. And those who presume to speak for God would do well to make sure that what they say is what he says. If there's one person in the entire universe whose mouth I would not want to put my words into, it's God's. So the content of any biblical preaching must be the word of God. The word is the body of doctrine, which is the Old Testament, and for Timothy, what he had learned from Paul, and then the New Testament. We have no liberty to invent what we want to preach. As preachers, we have the holy responsibility and unspeakable privilege of heralding God's timeless truth to his people. And as a preacher, I have no license to preach anything but the Bible. Do not mistake me for a professional speaker. I am a preacher of the word of God. If I begin to preach something else, I have wandered outside the call God and you, my church, has given me. I have wandered outside the area of my competence. I have no authority to declare a message other than the word of God. And when are we to preach? Paul says we need to be ready in season and out of season, all the time. We we are to never lose our sense of urgency. We're to preach at all occasions if it permits, whether it's convenient or not. And really, when is it a convenient time in our culture to preach anyways? A preacher should always be ready to preach. Our our ministry should, should be known for readiness, not laziness. The seasons never look good to preach. There's possibly never a convenient time to preach the truth of God's word, but we all, all of us preachers always need to be ready. And we should never come to this pulpit timid or unwilling to declare the whole counsel of God's word. We should never preach presuming upon God either. As the Puritan Richard Baxter said, I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. This is why I hated two services. Can I just be blunt with you? I hate two services on a Sunday. Because when I get up here to preach, man, I'm trying to empty the tank. I am worthless on Sunday afternoon. It's like having two meals, first meal and second meal. It doesn't make sense to me. And I preach, I try to, as a dying man to dying men. This may be the last time we're all gathered together to sit under the preaching of God's word. And I want to make sure that by the time I'm done, the tank's empty. And that you're filled up with God's word. We should echo Paul's word to the Romans. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Pastors 
need to be eager to preach the gospel, eager to share the truth of the Bible. If our first inclination is to pull back, then we might need to reconsider our calling. Because people are on the brink of eternity. They're on the edge. And we need to preach earnestly. People are starving for God's word, but they don't know it. They realize that there are hollow places in their life, the shallowness, the, the lack of insight, the lack of understanding, the lack of joy, and they cannot solve the problems of life. They need to hear the word preached. And you and me, friends, we need the word of God preached in every season, whether it's convenient or not. And how should we preach? Paul says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And pastors, preachers need to know the condition of their flock and wait on the Lord for how to navigate the particular passage in addressing their flock. Sometimes God's people need to be rebuked for their wrong beliefs or ungodly lifestyles. Paul does this so well in his letters to the Corinthians and Galatians. Other times people need to be reproved in order to get them back on the path of righteousness. This means church Discipline is actually done every single week as a church when we gather together when the preacher expounds the Bible. We call this formative discipline. And the, the proclamation of the gospel always calls for repentance and therefore is by nature confrontational because it's declaring that the hearer is going in the wrong direction. The Bible also corrects us. It reproves us when we wander away from God's will. So it's vital for you, friends, to be here consistently. It's important for you to be a faithful Christian to a local church. So friends, whether you are a member here or another church, you need to commit. And I'm serious, friends. This is a gracious rebuke. If you're not a member, faithfully attending, faithfully sitting under the, the preaching of God's word, then I don't know what you mean when you say you're a Christian. Because this is what Christians do. So if you haven't committed, if you're waffling on becoming a member, I'm gonna encourage you to commit. Commit to a church. Commit to learning from the preaching of God's word. Commit to pray for a church family. Commit to give cheerfully to that church family and then walk with them as they follow Jesus Christ. This is the third thing Paul says preaching should do. It's, it's exhorting, and that's what I just did. A preacher should exhort, encourage the church when they're facing fear and anxiety or great burdens. Spurgeon says, my aim in every sermon is to call sinners, to quicken the saints, and to be made a blessing to all. People begin to lose patience, though, with sound teaching. So Paul encourages Timothy to preach with complete patience and teaching. As preachers, we need to be patient and let God work. And if I'm being honest with you this morning, this is hard for a preacher. If you've ever parented children, you know what I mean. It's hard. As a pastor, we have short vision. We, we regularly overestimate what we can do and what can happen in five years, but we underestimate what can happen in 20 years. We need to be faithful and consistent and allow God to work in the hearts of his people. And my job is to persuade people to consider what God says in his word, to be loving, to be loyal to him, and to wait for the spirit to work in the hearts of people. Perhaps you don't know the story of Charles Simeon. He was a pastor who came to Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. 
And guess what? No one wanted him. No one wanted him as a preacher. Instead, they wanted another guy. But instead, they got Charles. And then in this church, there were these people called pew holders who rented their space in the church. And guess what they did? Because they didn't want Charles. They locked their pews. So if people wanted to come in and hear him preach, and people did, they had to sit on the floor. And when Simeon moved to put benches in the aisles, the church wardens threw them out. And this lasted for 12 years. 12 years. He labored to preach to a congregation that hated him. They also didn't allow him to preach in the evening service. Instead, they had control, and so they could find the man they wanted. Yet Charles persevered. He remained at that church and had an incredible patience for this difficult congregation. He pastored this church for 54 years and eventually won the favor of many of the people by the end. And how did he do this? He worked the gospel deeply into his own heart daily and remembered the patience that God had showed him. And then by God's grace, he displayed fatherly patience to the people that God had given him. If we're honest, we're all impatient people and we struggle daily with patience. Whether that's on the road while we're driving or at work with incompetent coworkers or at home with immature kids, we lack patience and we are sure easy to give ourselves a free pass when we're running off the snuff, but we seldom give as much patience to others. And I wanna encourage you friends, consider again this morning how patient God has been with you. Consider all the years of unbelief before God saved you. He was patient. Consider the sinful patterns of your life that you have refused to confess and forsake. God is patient. And those of you here that are not Christians, God's patience is on display right now, drawing you here this morning to sit under the preaching of God's word. Friends, when you begin to lose your patience this week, I want to encourage you to consider God and his patience with you. He is a patient God. And pray for your pastors who struggle to be patient. We're so earnest for you to learn what scriptures say And we regularly forget how long it took us to learn. We need to be patient. Paul says to pastors to preach with complete, which means whole, nothing lacking, complete patience. It's a sincere patience for the people that they're to teach. And there are some preachers who don't preach, they only teach. But Paul says that both need to be seen. Remember, preaching is heralding the facts, but teaching is explaining the facts. And both need to be present in a sermon. You declare boldly what the word says, and then you explain what the word means and how to apply it to your life. And we desperately need another generation of preachers who preach the word theologically. That means we need clear thinking and accurate work. We need more preachers who love to declare and teach God's word. And I want you to skip down to verse 5, because this applies to the preacher also. He says, as for you, always be so reminded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
The preacher must have a clear mind. That is what he means to be is sober-minded. Have you ever tried to talk to a drunk person? It never goes very far. They're, they're clouded. They're distracted. So sober-minded means they are serious. They're sane. They're well-balanced. They're sensible. They're self-controlled. They are free of every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness. As pastors, we, need, we must not lose our heads when we face opposition or hang our head when we're discouraged. We must remain calm and sane like an airline pilot who's flying through rough air. Alistair Begg says that pastors need to avoid having a fat head, being puffed up with pride, or a bobblehead, bouncing around to every doctrinal fad, and even being empty-headed, which means getting involved in ignorant controversies. He also says we shouldn't be sick-headed, having a mind filled with immorality, or hot-headed, responding to critics with anger or malice. Instead, Paul says we're to be gentle. But really, as pastors, we should be level-headed, self-controlled, stable, and steady. And I want to encourage you again and pray for your pastors. We need to be this way. We need you as a church to pray for us. Pastors need to be sober-minded, but we also need to endure suffering. I never realized how much suffering I would encounter when I entered the ministry. But like everyone else in this world, pastors suffer, just like you. And he says we need to endure hardship and suffering. It's a recurrent theme in this letter with this being the fifth time that he's instructed Timothy to be ready for it. People won't want to hear the truth and so we need to be prepared to suffer. Ministry is not for the faint of heart. People will turn their backs on you. They will slander you. Some of the worst slander I've ever experienced in my life was by self-identifying Christians. People will hurt you. Paul says to Timothy, you need to endure suffering. Then he says to do the work of evangelists and to fulfill your ministry. Pastors are to teach the church, but we're also to preach the gospel. That's part of preaching. And the gospel should be in every sermon preached from this pulpit and in every class in this church. A call to repentance. Friends, you shouldn't have to wonder if you ever hear, ever hear the gospel preached here. And perhaps this is the greatest culprit to suffering for the pastor because when you preach the gospel, you're calling people to repent and turn from their sins. And they react. This was the life of Paul as he stood on Mars Hill in Acts 17 and hands down the divine ultimatum. He says he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Friends, everyone here this morning will have to answer to God. All people everywhere need to repent. Every one of you, no matter your age, you will stand before God one day. You, will, you might brush him off now. You will still answer to him later. If you're holding up your baptism certificate or salvation card from your youth, you're not trusting in him. You're trusting in the thing you did. If you're trusting in you're walking down the aisle when you were a child, then you're not trusting in God and what he's done. And what do I mean? 
It's not the experience that saves you, it's God that saves you. So our trust needs to be in him, not in the experience. And so we shouldn't ask children to ask Jesus into their hearts. We should tell them to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. That is the gospel message. Jerry Bridges has a helpful definition. He says, trust is not a passive state of mind. It's a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold onto the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. You cannot hold on to your work and God's salvation at the same time. Trust God, hold on to him alone. And my unbelieving friends, the message of the Bible is that we who are made to know God have separated ourselves from God by our sin. Sin makes us operate on the principle, your life for me. And we deserve judgment by the way that we live. But God, by his great love in Christ, has come and lived, lived a life deserving no punishment. Christ came and gave his life for you. He has taken our sins on his body on the cross, the sins of all those from every nation who repent and believe in him. And he calls us now to repent and to believe. So friends, I implore you to turn from your sins of trust in yourself and turn to Jesus Christ this morning and trust in him alone. And there are many here who would love to talk with you more about this. You can find myself or even someone in your row who would love to walk you through this gospel. And to my believing friends, my Christian friends this morning, we should never grow tired of hearing the gospel preached. And if you do, then I'm afraid you're in a dangerous situation. Christians love to hear the gospel over and over. Why? Because it is the love story that drew them to their Savior, and you never get over it. Christian, do you remember the gospel? Do you remember God drawing you to himself? Do you recall the joy of salvation? If you're here and you're bored with the gospel, I fear you're not saved. If the gospel stresses you out, then maybe you're believing a false gospel. The good news of Jesus dying for us doesn't stress us out. It frees us. He takes our sin and we get his righteousness. This is one of the many reasons why we preach the gospel from this pulpit each week because we forget. And the other reason is that it's I desire to train you to go and take this message out into the world through the week. There's a lot of evangelism that happens here on Sunday mornings, and not necessarily from this pulpit. It's from you as you take this gospel and go into the world. And I'm praying with you for those in your life that aren't Christians. I texted a handful of people on Thursday to ask who I can pray for, and I did it during the Passover prayer this morning. And I'm praying I would encourage you, if you have others that you're praying for, people in your life, people that are close to you, to text me or email me the name so I can pray alongside with you. And I will join with you and I will encourage you as you seek to pray for opportunities to share the gospel. So that's one of the reasons why we include the gospel each week, so that you're trained to know the gospel and to share the gospel when you leave this place. But really, we forget. 
And I preached this, I shared this a few weeks ago. Martin Luther was asked by one of his congregants, why do you preach the gospel to us week after week? And Luther replied, because you forget it week after week. We have all forgotten the good news this week. And we need to be reminded. Remember, friends, you were once alienated from God because of your sin. But now you've been reconciled and redeemed and refreshed through the gospel, through what Jesus Christ has done. And I don't want you to ever get over the gospel. Well, this is the pastor and the word preached last is the congregation in the word. Paul is very precise in giving Timothy the reason why we must continue to preach the word. It's because people naturally move away from truth. It says in verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Do you know why false teachers are so successful? It's verses three and four, because people have itching ears that they want to scratch. Paul does spend time in this letter discussing the ministry of false teachers, but here his focus is not on false teachers, it's on the congregation that eats up their teaching. Mark Twain was quoted saying, most people are bothered by those passages of scriptures they do not understand, but the passages that bother me are those I do understand. When the rubber meets the road in our minds and our hearts, we will either choose to believe and live out the truth of scriptures or we'll walk away unable to endure. Christians endure sound teaching. Christians endure hard truths in the Bible. Christians endure the word. Even when it contradicts their lives because then he will seek to adjust their lives, not the word of God. And when Paul says itching, he's talking about a craving that people have to hear sensational news, to see miracles, to explore cults and, and other mysteries, to indulge in unsound teaching, to espouse fanciful theories on the fulfillment of prophecy and to spawn weird cults, as commentator John Phillips says. The better word, perhaps, though, is tickled, not itching. To have your ears tickled is to want massages, rather than messages, sermons that entertain rather than edify and build up. There was a guy, some of you know him, his name is Zhu, in a church I used to pastor, and he would say that every week I preached, he would come up beat up by the word of God, and that's high praise. He didn't want his ears tickled. It's a figure of speech that refers to people's desires, their, their felt needs or current wants. And when people have itching or tickling ears, they begin to decide what is wrong. And they seek out people to support their own thoughts. Itching ears are most concerned with what feels right, what feels good, what brings comfort. They aren't concerned with truth, especially if truth contradicts their life. They would much prefer myths Wandering, wandering away from truth. Myths are much more comfortable because even they can be an expert in myths. Anyone can be an expert. And be aware, Christian, of your Christian friends who visit many churches in a year and the problem for them perhaps isn't the church. Perhaps it's that they can't endure sound teaching. 
and how easy it is today to choose your preacher. You can literally have sermons of thousands of preachers at your fingertips on your phone at any moment. If you don't like the preaching at your church, you can just download a few other preachers on your phone or you can hop on television and TBN and watch some of the television preachers who desire to, to never confront you with the truth. Instead, they want to entertain you. And Spurgeon says, when a man will not believe the truth, he is sure before long to be greedy believer of lies. Paul is saying here that people will grow weary of the old plain gospel of Jesus Christ, itching for something easier, something entertaining. Is this true of you? Have you grown tired of hearing the truth of God's word? Is the gospel boring to you? And I will confess that sometimes as preachers, we can be boring. But the truth is never boring. It never should be. So I want to encourage you to not confuse the two. Teachers and preachers here, we need to, to show in our words and the truth of the gospel that it literally is the best news in the world. See, preachers are heralds declaring that the king has redeemed us. And friends, this is the best news in the world. People should know by our words and how we declare it that the gospel is the best news in the world. And we want the word to impact others because it's impacted us so deeply. If you're here, a regular member of this church, give financially and you help pay the pastor's salary, you become partly responsible for what is taught. This is true for every church you will ever join as a member. You should sit under the preached word, but you should also sit engaged with what is taught and preached. And maybe you need to grow in how you listen to a sermon. Are you engaged in what is being preached? And now, my wife's not in here, she's in the nursery, but you can ask her without fail for these last four years of weekly preaching I will ask her and my daughter Madeline now when we get into the car to drive home, did I make sense today? What is some feedback on the sermon? And I ask for blunt truth. She loves me enough to do it. And why do I do this? Because I want to grow as a preacher and I want to serve you as a listener. But most, I want to glorify God. But even if I was the best preacher on the planet, you have work to do each and every week as a listener. You have to work at listening to a sermon. Part of your work should be the week prior. And we're going to keep on encouraging you, friends, to read the text over and over and prepare your heart to worship. You should have come here this morning, friends, knowing exactly what the text was because you spent the last six days reading it over and again and then praying that God would speak through the preacher. Another Puritan, Thomas Watson said, when we come to the word, we should think within ourselves, we are to hear God in this preacher. And so I read the Bible devotionally every day through my reading plan, but I'm also reading 2 Timothy as I sit each morning. 
And I want God's word to soak into my soul as I come to prepare God's word to be preached. But you know what else I'm reading right now? I have in the last few weeks, I'm reading through the book of Esther. Do you know why? Because if you looked at the preaching calendar that we gave to you, and it's in the foyer and it's on the church app, Pastor Ryan is gonna preach and begin a series for the book of Esther in two weeks. He's gonna give us an overview of the sermon, the entire book of Esther. And so for me as a listener, I wanna read through Esther. So when I come to November 24th, I've been meditating on the book of Esther as he gets up to preach that book. And friends, you're only robbing yourself by not spending your week in the word, meditating on the passage before it's preached. It will strengthen how you listen to a sermon as you've spent all those days in God's word. If we don't want to wish, if we don't wish for our ears to be tickled, we, we cannot neglect the truth of scriptures. And it's, this is one of the main ways God has given us to endure to the end. And so Thomas Cranmer says we should read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest God's word. Friends, if we're Christian here this morning, our Bible reading should be regular. Our study should be diligent. Our meditation should be thoughtful. Our references to the Bible should be frequent. If we are Christians, this is what we're called to do, to feed upon God's word to us. And as Christians, we have to be known as Bible people who love the word of God, who find their nourishment and spiritual supply in the word of God. It is a must for us, friends. So let me ask, congregation, how are your ears? It's a strange question, right? Are you an itchy listener? Maybe you're new to our church this morning, and we're glad you're here, and perhaps you're looking for an easygoing sermon or a short sermon. This might not be the place. We seek to carefully exposit the scriptures here each week, preaching what the text says, that the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. And we believe, we're convinced this brings fruit. Are you in the word regularly, friends? Could it be said of you this morning that you are a Christian that loves their Bible and is challenged when you read it and when you sit under it preached? As I wrap up, I want to instruct you briefly on the role of a pastor. Too many pastors find themselves unable to give themselves to the preparation of preaching and teaching of the Bible to God's people. And a number of years ago when I served here as an interim pastor, which feels like a lifetime ago, I was in the office and a gentleman who no longer attends this church came into the office in a huff. He was busy outside the building back here clearing brush and he was upset that I and the other associate pastors weren't outside helping. And he says, you're paid by the church, why aren't you out there working? There's a temptation to believe that a pastor only works one day a week. I hear the joke, it's not funny. Because you read Acts 6, the elder's job is to pray and to preach. And God calls others to step up and serve in areas that are needed for the church. And if we're honest, 
we should admit as pastors that practically everything else in the church can be done by very other qualified leaders, much more qualified than myself. But the main teaching of the church is the particular task of the preacher. The sermon is the center of the pastor's responsibility and the bulk of my week is spent reading, studying, meditating, soaking up, praying, and writing a sermon. This week I spent 30 hours on this sermon. And I thank the Lord. I do it every week at the end of my week for you congregation allowing me to serve in that way. You're a good congregation. It is hard to explain how much joy it is to spend time in God's word and the privilege that I have to do that. And that's because of you. And the center of our worship on Sunday mornings is the word preached. And we are unapologetic of this. John Calvin was right to make the word preached the focal point of the gathered worship. And I pray, I pray regularly that God would allow us to train and develop more preachers for his kingdom. And if I'm honest, I, I pray in the future you won't hear me preach as much because you'll have a steady diet of men who are trained, eager to preach before you. The word, the gospel. Let me end by hearing the plea of Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, spoken of a century ago. We want, again, Luther's, Calvin's, Bunyan's, Whitfield's, men to fit Mark Eris, whose names breathe terror in the foreman's ears. We have dire need of such. Whence will they come to us? They are the gifts of Jesus Christ to the church and will come in due time. He has power to give us back again a golden age of preachers. And when the good old truth is once more preached by men whose lips are touched as with a live coal from off the altar, this shall be the instrument in the hand of the Spirit for bringing about a great and thorough revival of religion in the land. Let's pray. Our sovereign Lord, we ask you to answer Spurgeon's heartfelt prayer once again this day. God, I beg that you would give us John Calvin's again. Give us Charles Spurgeon's and George Whitfield's. May you give your church legions of biblical expositors as in the days of the Reformation ready to unleash the unvarnished truth of Scripture. May we see the power of the word preached again. Even though our world is covered in darkness, we know that after darkness comes light. May you use our church through the preached word to spread this glorious gospel in the Northwest and throughout the world. And we ask all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.